new to spirituality, having a hard time relating with spiritual teachers and topics? Has the awakening process got you saying, holy shit, I need an easy to understand blueprint to all the woo-woo stuff out there. Don't you worry, we got you. Welcome to the Holy Shit Podcast. We're going to cover it all. Awakenings, chakras, religion, holistic healing, and a lot more holy shit in between. Guidance and support from two regular people dedicated to helping making your own journey as smooth as possible. Here are your hosts, Nate Johnson and Esha Estar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 21 of the Holy Shit with Nate and Nesha podcast. We've got an amazing guest for today, Mr. Jason Gregory. Uh, I'll go in a little bit about his bio here in a second. But uh, before we get in there with Jason, Esha, how are you doing? I am fantastic. Happy and bubbly. Because this is like this this particular episode is like my thing that I'm like, hmm. Yes. I love to sink my teeth into. So, but overall, I'm doing really, really good. Um, just going through shifts and changes uh, like everyone else. Yeah. No, I've been looking forward to this episode ever since you told me that it was a possibility. So, pumped to have Jason on tonight. Um, Jason, I'm just going to read your bio real quick and then we'll get started. Uh, yep. Hey, J- Jason Gregory, he's an author and a philosopher specializing in Eastern and Western philosophy, comparative religion, psychology, <laughs> cognitive science, metaphysics, and ancient cultures. Uh, he's an author and a filmmaker, and for many years, Jason has lived in Asia, studying the spiritual traditions and meditative practices of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Taoism, visiting some of the most remote places on Earth. Uh, Jason focuses on Eastern spirituality and culture, and for over a decade, he's been teaching the philosophy of the East to, and their meditative practice to the modern world. Uh, Jason has a massive YouTube following of over 124,000 subscribers, as well as a, a podcast. So we are pumped to have Jason on the podcast today. Jason, welcome, buddy. Oh man, it's a pleasure to be on, Nate and Esha. It's amazing, and um, I love the name of the podcast too. Holy shit! Like this is <laughs> <laughs> this is right up my alley, you know. So, but but um, but I, I want to say I've been looking forward to this as well. Great. Right. Since to, to give the listener some context, me and Esha we go back a ways, so we we've spent some time in India together. So we've been talking about this for a long time. So it's just a pleasure to be on. Yeah, and if you, if for their listeners for context, if, when we first started recording this podcast, if we Esha we hadn't maybe done our first or second one, and then Esha went to India for two weeks, and that was with yeah. Jason's with Jason's group. Yeah, awesome, yeah. Man. And the moment I, I met Jason and Guy Young, his wife, like I completely fell in love with both of them. So it's like. You know, they're they're the most humble people that you'll ever meet, and just the way Jason, your your passion for what you do, um, and how you talk about spirituality and and the way you share it, and how down to earth you are with yeah. all of it. Like, I mean, it's it's so refreshing, and and that's really what I fell in love with this this ease that you have with yourself and this passion that you have for sharing this, this spirituality, um, with others. It's infectious to me and it's grown on me. And yeah, so I just want to share you with everyone. Yeah. I'm going to second that. I'm going to second that because I, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to give you any, any, uh, expectations or, or comparisons (laughs) here, man, but 
<laughs> I, I'm going to tell you that um, for me, my kind of like my Mount Rushmore in the spirituality teaching world is like Ram Dass and Alan Watts because they can take such a massively complex content and 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 put it in a digestible way. And that's what I see you doing very, very well. Um, and it's no doubt that you have the following that you do because, you know, when you dig into one of your videos and you start talking about your level of understanding and education in these in these different um, uh, modalities is just massive. And um, I'm just pumped to have you here, man, and, and get, get man, to talk. Thanks, man. To be, to be mentioned in, you know, <laughs> in the esteemed company of Alan Watson, Ram Das. I mean, well, I don't know if I'm worthy, but I tell you, I, I will say that they both influenced me when I was younger too. So, yes. Um, and I think to back what both of you have said, that a lot of my audience do contact me and say that they do like the the down to earth nature and and sort of not the guru complex yes. type of spirituality okay. that we often see. Unfortunately, a lot of Westerners portray so. And yes. I, and and I always just go back to my roots from where I'm from. I'm just from a humble background, and my mom and dad, just the average Joe and Jane, you know. So I I would feel uncomfortable to portray myself as a type of like mystic or guru, you know. Even though I I have a lot of this knowledge, but I I, I share it in the way that I know how to share it, you know. So. Right. And one teacher said to me once that you know the, the positive thing about myself is I kind of know myself. Whereas I think a lot of people uh, who in the West who try to portray a guru complex have an image of what they should be yeah. instead of just instead of digging into their own nature and just seeing yeah. you know, what am I actually fundamentally? Yeah. And I think and I think that's how we all resonate with each other, right? When when you know each other, when you know yourself more, you can connect easier with people as opposed to like, you know, look, I'm on a pedestal and listen to me and and follow me, but you know, never question me. So, You're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, that's a, that's a great segue there. To, you know, kind of talking about you know your family, but I mean, normally what we do on the podcast and we have the different guests is we kind of talk about their their beginnings into the spirituality uh, world and kind of how what your journey was. So, would you mind walking us through kind yeah. of you know what that path looked like for you and how you got to kind of what you're doing today? Yeah, no problem. It's like I came from a, just a regular background. You know, my mom and dad weren't religious or spiritual in any way, even though when I think they both passed away now. But when I think about them, they probably were without even knowing it. You know, yeah. my mother and my father both had such a kind and pure heart, but didn't, you know, need all the bells and whistles to say they were spiritual or religious or whatnot. Sure. And in that sort of grounded environment, I think I, I, me and my two brothers and my sister, we developed, you know, in in a pretty grounded manner. And so, I'm from a small town in Australia called Mackay, and you know, there's nothing really special. No profound experiences when I was young. Actually, I was more into sport than I was into philosophy when I was younger. Even though I had a a keen interest in philosophy, but it was always on the back burner. You know, the young man in me, the the fire is burning. You know, I want to go out there and play rugby league and and these type of sports. And then as I got older, I, I was just in, in and out of jobs, you know, for, for let's say like five or six years, different type of jobs when I, when I got older. I didn't get a degree or anything like that in philosophy, and even though I, I had studied it for a long time. But the game changer for me was moving to India and also meeting Guyang as well. So moving to India, meeting Guyang, these were the two 
biggest impacts that I've had in my life. Like, because Guy was already steeped in a lot of meditation practice and this and that. And, and you know, I'm I'm delving in and out and in my early to mid twenties, you know, and then we went traveling together to India and, and India really just, first we came to Thailand here and engrossed myself in more of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. But then it was just, it's the, something about it, like Asher could probably speak to this as well. There's, there's a, an energy or an atmosphere in India that's just conducive for deep spiritual thought. Yeah. And that may sound, may sound crazy to people because as soon as you get off the plane in India, everything hits you in the face, the heat, the stench, the people. I mean, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, but there's a sense of ease in that chaos. Like, and I think that you guys are the same. I'm come, we come from environments where it's manicured, everything's taken care of. But then when you go somewhere like that, it allows you to open up a little bit more Yeah, and, and you can actually receive things easier. Like you right. You know, I don't know what it is, but so it's just like I, I 10x my game when I went to India. You could say, like, my understanding of philosophy, uh, spirituality, everything got deeper. And I, I spent a lot of time in and around ashrams and monasteries. Uh, I was influenced uh, heavily by Ramana Maharshi when I was a bit younger. And so being in places like Tiruvannamalai really affected me. And even being in places like Kolkata, which is one of the poorest cities in the world, just drinking a chai on the side of the road, meeting the people, connecting with the people. For me, this is one of the deepest experiences that I've ever had. You know, like a lot of people say, who are your teachers? And I can rattle off a lot of teachers that are my teachers, but I always say the common people in India were my teachers as well. Yeah, They played a significant role in, in where I am today. So, but, you know, for those who are beginning on the path, I would say, traveling is one of the most significant things someone can do you don't have to travel right right of course you don't but it's good to go to places like india nepal sri lanka thailand these places to, to understand the mind where what where this great knowledge came from because there's a difference between easterners and westerners on a psychological level like a lot of people think that we all universally think the same but we don't Right. This is why when you <laughs> when you go to India, everything goes awry because you're thinking like, yeah, but this is how it works. And it's like, no, that's not how it works here, son. This is India. There's a phrase in India, this is India, my friend. And right. It's like, oh, i got to get used to how it is here. Yeah. Complete so, shock to the system. Oh. Definitely. Definitely. 100%. And, definitely. And so when I was a younger man mm. going there, it was, I, I grappled with it. You know, I did, I wasn't, I'm, I was nowhere near where I am now. So I grappled with the with the culture and the environment even though i loved the, the the spiritual traditions of there it it took me a while to understand why they arose from that place and so for me like on my own spiritual journey i would say traveling you know obviously meeting my wife these things were the, were the biggest things that impacted my life and 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 also getting comfortable with who i am as a, as just as jason right like so i think in the West, we're always told that you should be better. You you're not good how you are, right? And, and all of this 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 constant rhetoric that we we hear in the society that you know, Nate and Asher aren't, aren't good enough as they are. You need to do better. You need to be better. You need to change yourself. 
And yeah. and I, one of my early uh, loves was the Tao Te Ching. So I was one of my earliest influences was Taoism, probably before Ramana Maharshi and 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 Advaita Vedanta these these uh, traditions in India. And so in 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 Taoism, there's a big emphasis on that the society needs the society needs to be questioned rather than you need to be questioned, right? Mm. So the society's telling you that, hey, you need to, Asha needs to be like this. And it's like, but why does she need to be like that? I mean, yeah. okay, I, I understand rules and regulations and so forth and so on, but, but why are you trying to change a person at a, at a fundamental level? Because that, Lao Tzu would say that that person at the fundamental level has got something to give the world. But when you change its shape, it just, it's got nothing to give the world. You know, yeah. because wow. it just it just becomes part of everything else. It becomes part of the herd, whereas like you know, everyone's got something to give, and so learning that type of philosophy at a young age really helped me sort of stay grounded too. To be honest, because I didn't get into any sort of out there teachings, you could say, where it was more Taoism was more of a sort of is a grounded philosophy on understanding your own nature, understanding your place in the world and the society around you and questioning whether the society that you live in is toxic or you're toxic, right? Yes. So, and toxic is a, is a big word that's used in the West these days, obviously. And <laughs> and so deep down, I, the, the Taoist philosophy is, Lao Tzu comes from the perspective and other philosophers as well, like Chuangzi and Mencius, these these Chinese philosophers, come from the perspective that human be- human beings are fundamentally good, but we we grow up in a world where we're told we are beasts from birth. So yeah. Yeah. you're right. a beast. You need to be changed. You need to be educated. You need to be shaped to fit this thing, right? And Lao Tzu saying to be worthy. No, to be worthy, exactly. Right, right. And Lao Tzu saying no. Do do the complete opposite. Do yeah. the complete opposite. Actually, you are fundamentally good, and they all come from this place. Actually, Buddhism and Hinduism also come from this place that we're all fundamentally good. We don't need a doctrine. We don't need something else to tell us how to be pious. How because uh, they're not coming from a perspective that we we're sinners, right? Right. And, right. and so this this was a big thing for me when I was younger, working out this idea that. Because yeah, we, you guys from America, I'm from Australia. The most prevalent religion is Christianity, and it's not a beat up on Christianity, but the perspective is that, you know, original sin, we're we're sinners, right? From right. from birth, and and we need to repent, and we need to find God, and and look, I would I would argue that we don't need to find God, but it's right. It, it's a different view, right? And so well, that's okay. what really changed me was the different perspective in the East, which made sense to me. Right. So as opposed to as opposed to this monarchical perspective of God. Yeah. And, you know, to, just to kind of piggyback on your point, when you're talking about the, the West and even when you insert Christianity into the discussion and what you said, not a knock on Christianity, but Christianity works really well in the West. And maybe it's like it's chicken and chicken or egg and how you look at it. But the whole concept yeah. of Christianity is to get somewhere better than where you're currently at. Right. So it's. Yeah. You know, and that is that is kind of that supports how what we're doing in the West constantly to be better yeah. than you are and to get mm-hmm. somewhere better than you currently are at. 
You know, exactly. so I can see why I can see why we get into that rut, because not only is society telling us that that's the case, but so is our own religion, Matt, the, yep. the, the main religion. So it's interesting. And this and this is and this is more to do with, as I was talking earlier about the different cognitive styles between the East and the West. Mm-hmm. So the way the, the West developed, particularly through Greece, was a individualistic society uh, perspective. Yes. So we environmentally we were hunters, herders, fishers, fishermen, and you can do all that on solo, right? And so our philosophies and our religions reflect individualism. Yeah. So Christianity reflects individualism. You need to be better. You need to strive this and that. Whereas if we contrast that with the East, uh, the cognitive style is is holistic. So yes. and that and this is uh, not a knock on individualism. We need both, but uh, holism is more about, and, and the traditions that developed in Asia are holistic, right? So, yes. like, and they come from uh, the environment where we rice cultivation is the main source of food. So, yeah. it's it's not that I can go out and do this on my own. I need to depend on, you know, my friends, my family, and, and so forth and so on. That we all are, that we're that we can all cultivate rice. We're all fed. Everyone's happy. And then all of the religions and the philosophies reflect that, right? So that's why in Taoism and Hinduism and Buddhism, there's a, there's a big emphasis on community. And you still feel that when you go to India. You feel a real sense of community. Mm-hmm. Whereas, unfortunately, Christianity – and Christianity, look, I, I, it's like I said, it's not a knock on Christianity. And I think Christianity's got a little bit of a bad rap for a long time yeah. in the West because of science and because of – certain progressive narratives and, and so forth and so on. But I think that uh, philosophically, like, and and kind of spiritually, particularly probably where all three of us are at, it doesn't really reflect like that idea of monarchical sort of like, you know, you follow these rules and regulations, you sin from birth, and right. this more individualistic perspective doesn't vibe, I think, with a lot of even Westerners, you know, these days. It's where Westerners are, Naturally, like even since the counterculture movement, right in America, where people found out about Zen Buddhism and and Vedanta and and Taoism mm-hmm. and these things, particularly through Alan Watts and yeah. people of that nature, it's like wow, this this makes more sense than having a monarchical god that kind of has condemned you to sin unless you you know repent and and you find Jesus. Yes, and so yeah. for me that never made sense when I was younger, right? And like, I, and so my mum and dad weren't religious. Actually, my <laughs> my father had a had a uh, he disdained uh, Christianity. You could say like he, his his parents were Catholic, and so, but that's I think that that doesn't really vibe with a lot of Westerners at all. And 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 I think that it's like I said, it's some people still resonate with Christianity, obviously. And I think uh, the West could have been more of a Christian-oriented culture, maybe, if science and and these type of things didn't intervene hundreds of years ago. Not saying that's anything wrong with science either, right? But it it kind of uh, not... Well, you see people in Europe and that leaving Christianity by the droves. So, and that's... and, and But unfortunately, a lot more people are becoming atheists, so they don't really have any beliefs and don't believe in God and, and so forth and so on. And look, I wouldn't say that there's anything wrong with that either, but there's a lot of uh, high suicide rates in that within atheist people. So, because why live, right? What's right. the 
what, what's the yeah, purpose yeah. of war? You know, I'm, I'm finding in a lot of conversations that I have with people when they, they ask you, like, what's, what's changing with you? What's your perspectives? How do you think? And I'm saying, well, you know, this is just how I'm feeling. What I'm emotions is that a lot of people um, that I speak with, especially, you know, in, in this part of the country that I'm in, it's traditionally very Baptist, you know, Christianity. And it, it once, once they understand that it's totally possible to still have a relationship with God, source, whatever, and with and even and even have a reverence and an, and a belief in Jesus and His teachings, but not necessarily be dug deeply into the religious aspects of Christianity. They're like, wait a minute, how can that be possible? So those are some things that are like you know, that that have shifted a lot of the conversations that I've had. And then the fact that you can also have a reverence for and understanding and appreciation for Buddhism and Taoism and um, you know yeah. Hinduism and all of these other things as well. Um, yep. It doesn't have to be because I. Be- I don't because I prefer one that I damn the others, you know. Right, no, right, no, right. No. Yeah, you, you I mean, that... you don't... Oh, go sorry. ahead. No, no I was just going to say. <laughs> 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 you got, you got, you got, you got. No, 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 no. I, I just wanted to piggyback off what Nate was saying, and you know, as a yoga teacher, I've had a lot of people who would come up and you know tell me that you know yoga was evil. Um, you know, that I was practicing, you know, do, do you know what you're practicing? Um, and Devil like, worshiper. right. So I was, a, so, uh, you know, and that was new for me. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. And, mm-hmm. and it's because for them, you know, it's like, um, I'm practicing this polytheistic, um, type of theology coming out of India. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was scary for them. But I, I think if, you know, they looked a little bit or did their research or realized that it's not at all. Mm, no. You know. No. Um, and that, and I, if, I wish I could show you guys my YouTube comments in, in relation to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet you get some good ones. Uh, uh, you get some beauties, I tell you. Like, I've, got, I've had every Christian under the sun telling me that I'm, you know, uh, peddling satanic beliefs and, and right. things like this, you've just got to turn a blind eye a lot of the time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I mean, they don't understand. Like, let's, let's use yoga for example, right? They don't understand the rich history of yoga. They don't understand the philosophy at all. What they see is just something that threatens the existence of their own tradition. Mm-hmm. And so, it's best to tear it down. And I speak about it in my upcoming book on on Taoism about uh, the problems. One of the two. The, no, the one inherent problem both with Christianity and Islam is doctrinal privilege. So this idea mm-hmm. that if you're not a believer, you're a, you're a sinner, right? Whereas the Eastern traditions didn't have an expansionist perspective. It was just like, look, this is our traditions, and do you like it or you don't like it? We don't care. Like, We're not going to hold a pamphlet on the corner and try and convert you to it. But the, but the same thing is, though, with those, though, you already are. There's nothing, you're already out. There's nothing <laughs> right, to do. right. There's, There's nothing, nothing to do. do. Yeah. So they, they, yeah. why, why care? Because you will eventually get it. Maybe not in this life, but you will eventually. Right, another life. You know? That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think they just, a lot of them just feel threatened. Like a lot of the Indians, the Hindus, they would just say like, well, when we talk about that, they just think it's ridiculous because, well, they look at the perspective that we're all Brahman, like we're all That's the ultimate right. nature. Like it's. And and they will say, yeah, it's okay. They can follow Christianity and believe whatever they want. You know, it does, yeah. doesn't matter. Like it doesn't uh, eradicate the fact that we're all part of the one source. It's 
how you understand that philosophically, spiritually is is up to you, really. But if you're going around trying to convert people and this and that, or interfering right. with their with right. their own natural growth, the East right. would say that that's where a lot of the trouble actually comes from, right? And we only have to see the history of Christianity to see the atrocities that have occurred at the hands of that tradition, right? And so, and look, it's not to say that tradition is bad per se either. Like I, when people get involved in Eastern spirituality, I, I always tell them that they should learn actually the tradition as well, because then you can understand the, the, the scripts that it comes from. You can understand, you know, you don't have to understand all the rituals, right? The rituals, there's a, a million Hindu rituals. You'll never, you'll never conquer them. But it's good to understand the actual traditions because it gives you a connection to the lineage of it as well. So, like, for example, if you're connecting to Advaita Vedanta, right, uh, non-dual knowledge, the non-dual knowledge of Brahman, of, of the ultimate source, you're connecting to the rishis from five, 6,000 years ago. You know, like you're connecting, that tradition comes from a long, long time ago and you connect to that. And it, it means something. You know, it's not, look, I know that, a lot of people appropriate the knowledge and and look there's nothing wrong with that too like you can evolve certain uh spiritual traditions but it's good to know the tradition as well like uh, as opposed to just following maybe a, a new age version of say vedanta or or a western guru who teaches it their way and and so right. forth and so on whereas you see in the modern day a lot of people will say that they know about this knowledge, and then as soon as you hear them speak, you know that they don't know this knowledge, right? Like, and or, and or through their actions as well. So when you see a teacher, I've been around teachers before. I don't know why I've gone on this tangent, but uh, <laughs> I've seen I've seen teachers before, and this may be back up with Christianity as well, where you'll see priests or you'll see gurus, and they their actions don't back up their words. You know, so it's it's not an embodied spirituality it's more of a i'm i look i'm a teacher and i'm teaching this and but and i'm getting paid well how good but it's not it's not an embodied spirituality and i think that for anyone beginning on the path you want to always be mindful of your teachers and that to see if they have they embodied this experience are they humble or are they arrogant or or can they can they be questioned you know so yeah Yeah. because there's danger in that right like Even with the little bit that I do with my students, you know, whenever I do work or if I'm offering something new, um, I tell my students, I was like, don't take my word for it. I was like, go find out for yourself. I'm like, I'm just planting a seed, but I'm like, you know, you have to go out and try to figure this out for you. Try it on, see how it fits, but don't just, you know, blatantly take what I say as truth. No. And the guru complex can it can really cause a lot of psychological damage to oh, people. Yeah. If and this is why when I was learning, I learned from more so swamis than gurus, because at least with a swami in in the Vedanta order, they have to go through strict training, and they have to learn from another swami who's a, usually an older gentleman, and so they get passed on the knowledge, but they're also taught not taught. They live in an environment where humility and compassion and this and that are just second nature, right? They don't grow up in a, a dog-eat-dog world. And so I've learned a lot from them. But at the same time, to speak to what we were saying, I won't mention his name, but I did learn from a pretty popular Western guru 
a, a long time ago. And and I would say that, you know, he was one of my earlier teachers. But and and look, I still don't have that much bad to say about him, but he had the guru complex, right? He he enjoyed the attention. He he enjoyed being on the pedestal. And as I noticed over the years, I saw this get worse and worse. And then mm. what happens is younger women come around and then, you know, off down the rabbit hole we go. Yeah. So, and, and this is very common, right? So, and he's, that, that those type of people end up getting found out. Yeah. But he's still got, he's still going, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, um, if you know, you know, if you don't, you don't, but it's, it just, it's part and parcel. And I think that I remember the Dalai Lama once said that, in relation to that, like it's it's completely disrespectful to the spiritual traditions to if if teachers are doing that right, like they're taking advantage of young women or or men. I've right. heard of I've heard of female gurus in India take right. advantage of of young boys, and so it's yeah you've you've got to be careful with the power you've given or or the power you think you have right. Like they think they have this power, but they probably don't have this power, and then they. Are eloquent at speaking, they are a good salesman, and then you know they cause a lot of damage. And and this one gentleman that I was speaking about, he's caused a lot of trauma to a lot of people mm-hmm. with the way that he teaches, the way that he behaves. And so, and he's not alone. Like there's a lot of them, but you've got to be careful. You've got to be mindful. Like for everyone listening, you've got to be really mindful about who you follow. And that's why the teachers that I always gravitated towards were more grounded, were more humble, even jovial. Yeah. You know, like they weren't afraid to I've been with a Zen master, for example, right? We've been in on a Zen retreat. An amazing Japanese gentleman. And the first thing he does after the meditation retreat is he cracks a beer. And he's like, <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes you just got to have a beer. <laughs> it's like, all right, so you share a beer with him. But it's like something completely uncharacteristic, right? Like you wouldn't think that when, you know, everyone thinks they're on a cloud and they're all holy and then Mm-hmm. He his lesson there is that you're still a human. You still have to enjoy just being a human. Like you're not yeah. a, you're not superhuman, right? And I think that I think that the problem when Eastern spirituality went west is we Alan Watts actually spoke about this. We over sensationalized it. We turned it into being superhuman instead of yeah. being radical instead of being radically human, uh, which is how we put it. Mm. I love that radically human. Well, yeah. so I'm, the I'm question. Just saying- I- Go ahead. Go ahead, Nate. No, no, no. I was just going to say, like, you're talking, because I think this is so important because of, um, I know so many people are looking for gurus, like, like especially being a yoga teacher, right? People are like, oh, well, you know, I want to find my guru. How would you vet? What would be if, you know, to some of our listeners who are maybe wanting to follow a teacher, how, how should they vet a teacher? to make mm. sure that they are embodied? That's a good question. I would say if you if you know yourself more, you'll be able to find a good mm. teacher. If you're, if, if you're like, being is a bit porous and so like things can come in and out of you and you don't have a good bullshit detector, then you can, yeah, you know, I see a, a lot of naive people sometimes get, you know, they fall down the rabbit hole of being with a teacher for too long and then, they get abused by them and and so forth and so on. You see this all around the world, right? So how to vet the teacher, I would say understand yourself a little bit more first. And if you resonate with how they're teaching, of course, I'm not, you, you should 
follow that inclination. But if you see things that don't uh, match their actions, then then you have to start questioning and maybe I wouldn't say doubting, but maybe ask around, like, "What what do you think about this?" or or, or their actions and doing this and that, right? So, for example, I've been with teachers before who have been very forthcoming and straight down the line, you know, like like a football coach, you know, like that. And and in in that sense, actually they were better than some of the softer teachers I was with because the softer ones who were pretending to be soft were actually behind closed doors were doing something else. Where the other teacher who was direct doing this, like, you got to do it, like, you know, not in, a, not in a crazy manner, but they were actually more trustworthy in some sense. Mm. So it's it, it's a tricky terrain. It's hard, it, it's, it's hard to generalize, like, who's a good teacher, who's not, a, and and how to find if someone is a bad teacher. But I, I would say just keep understand yourself and spend time with them if you resonate with it, right? And so, but if their actions don't match up with what they say, then I mean that's a dead giveaway for me. Yeah. Mm. Hey, um, so on the topic of guru, before we shift to anything else, I this is a question that I I you're more qualified than anybody I know to answer this. And I I I don't, I don't even know that you can look this up and get good information. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw this out there. So obviously it's, it's almost a mandatory reading list as you're coming through a spiritual awakening for autobiography of a yogi, you know, Yogananda, uh, you're yeah. going to read the Ram Dass. You're going to hear about Maharaji and, and all of that. So are, are there realized beings such as a Maharaji or a Yogananda that are still out there practicing right now that are performing and doing all of these amazing things that they're just flying under the radar or I just, how, I mean, and I think that I mean, Maharaji, if you, if you like, he wanted to be there for a while and you know, whether he, you know, was kind of coy about it, wanted Westerners to come over or not and find out about him or not, who, who knows? <laughs> it kind of sounds like he, he said he didn't, but he kind of did. I don't know. But you yeah. know um, <laughs> you know, right now, right now it's kind of like we, more than almost any time I can, you know, think of in the the last fifty years, would be could use one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, could use a, could use a Maharaji, you know, or a Yogananda. Um, yeah. And I just don't see anybody really stepping their head up, you know, above the above the noise. So, um, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, that might be also a product of the time as well, too. Like okay. I think that the early nineteen hundreds. You even had Swami Vivekananda, right? You had all of these great yeah, yeah, realized, yeah. realized, realized beings, Ramana Maharshi. You had all of these guys, yeah, yeah. And then next minute, you've got no one. Exactly. So, right. Right. But in saying that, because I've spent many years in India, um, there are there are, for example, there are Tamil Siddhas, right, in Tamil Nadu, that a Siddha is a is a is a perfected being, like to translate that kind of from Tamil English, and a Siddha. You can find them, but you've got to go out into the, you know, out into the wilderness. You've got to find a yeah. cave. Where everyone finds out sort of where they are, and you'll go there, and they're just they're in bliss all the time. They're practicing all the time, meditation, or they're in deep samadhi all the time. You could say, and so then they wouldn't give like discourses. First of all, they don't know English; they only know Tamil, and they barely even speak anymore. So, but to be in their presence, you can feel the power, right? right. Like you're in their. So it, even being in their presence becomes meditative almost. Yeah. So, and I've experienced this also in Tamil Nadu, and I've also experienced it in 
uh, Uttarakhand in the north, Rishikesh, which you probably both know, famous with the Beatles and and that in Rishikesh, you'll, there'll be yogis, right, that will take you on their own type of vision quest. So you'll go into the mountains, in the, into the Himalayas for like six months and no one will wow. see you. Yeah, yeah. I've never done it personally because I thought, well, six months. I mean, Guy Young's probably going to be going, where the hell is this dude? Like, right. <laughs> she's not having I've, that. No, no, she's not having that. But, but I've seen, I saw, I saw once this European guy come back and he was weathered. You know, he was really yeah. weathered. But, but in his eyes, there was something had had changed. Yeah. So like, I mean, his beard was like this. His his hair was matted, and yeah, there was just a, a transformation. Yeah. From being in that experience so there are realized beings but i think it's not in the sense probably as as it was right there's ones who are marketing them well maharaji probably wanted people to come right like it seemed sure. even yoga yoga under i think there was a lot of sure him wanting financial advantage or something like that and then, look, there's nothing wrong with money either right in that right, sense right, right. but but um look i would say there are certain swamis that I, I feel a, a good like someone like Swami Savapriyananda, who uh, is he actually heads the Vedanta Society in New York, and so he's Indian, and I would say that he he seems like a realized being. He's he's he speaks well. Let's say that like it's it's different in the context of like Ravana Maharshi or a Maharaji. And these people, Yogananda, who kind of they look like they've renounced, but they still actively teach, right? Like yes. So I, I would say that the, the form has changed, but there are still realized beings out there. Even someone like Swami Atmanananda, who's who's a Belgium guy who lives in Rishikesh, he I mean he, he wouldn't say he's too humble, right? He's too humble, but he he practices a lot and and when he does give teachings, I mean, it's you feel like it's coming from the source. It's right. It's some. So, I would say the form has changed. Even though, I would say that there's a lot of Indians who are, who try to rekindle the, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. they, they 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 miss the mark, right? But and look, there may be some Westerners as well who do that. But it's um, yeah. the, I get that question a lot. They someone yeah. a lot of people who, who follow my content they. Uh, were influenced by by Ramana Maharshi, and they're like, "Why isn't there someone like Ramana?" And it's like, "Well, look, it's a different time too. Mm-hmm. Like he was he was born in the late eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. He grew up in a a family of Brahmins, yeah. so he he was already schooled in Vedanta and this this great knowledge. Where you and I and, and Asha, we're we're starting from scratch, from yeah. birth, you know. So we're 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 scratching and clawing. And look, there are yeah." So it's, I think it's a product of the time. And I think that, like, for example, Ramana, there wasn't a lot of options in India at that time as well, right? So if you grow up in the countryside, your life is either turn to the Dharma or become a rice farmer. Right. There's no, there's two options. Where now we, we're littered with options. Nate True. can start a pod, Nate can start a podcast. He can right. be a priest. He can be an astronaut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's yeah. so many things, right? Right, right. It's a good point. Yeah. I have a question, um, Jason. You know, we're talking about some of these people who are like realized people. What 
our audience might not understand what that is. It, what is it? What does it mean to be realized? Self-realization. That's, that's a great question. That's a great question. Well, that's enlightenment. Like, if we say if we use enlightenment, self-realization interchangeably, mm-hmm. like I think that that's probably the same term, right? So, self-realization is the understanding that your individual existence, for example. Asher or Jason or Nate, uh, we're a, we're a temporary phenomenon, right? So we're we're a wave on an infinite ocean, mm. and so the the realization is an abidance in the infinite ocean and a and a realization that the the wave is temporary. I was going to say a distance from the wave, right? In in yoga, they would say having a distance from the wave. So and and look, I don't disagree with that either, right? but that can people can get confused with that and. They might go a bit nutty, so but it's a it's a realization that we are all one pure consciousness. So, but it's an actual an abidance in it. I was going to say an experience, right? So, experience. But see, when you say experience, there's an there's an experience and an experience. So, there's still a, a sense of duality. Okay. So, um, it's it's the idea of the seer and the seen, right? Where they become one. And so, uh, to use Sanskrit f- for your listeners. There's a there's a term called Atman, which means undifferentiated consciousness. So Nate's a differentiated consciousness, Jason's differentiated, Esher's differentiated, but there's this undifferentiated aspect that we come in contact with, and people would say that that's the soul as well. But the soul here is is connected to everything. It's not like an individual soul. It's 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 a connection to each and everything. Like it's the 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 pure oneness of reality. Mm-hmm. And so that's what realization would be that you are not this, you are, you are that, right? You are. Yeah. So, and look, that's easier said than done, right? Like if you live in a city, if you live in New York city and you're grafting night and day, you're in wall street, you're going to think that you're this person constantly because you're operating from that sense of personality, but there's something else that's much deeper and much greater that we all are. And, and a lot of people, a lot of scientists and that will disagree with that. But then you see now for the last 20 years, there's the Mind Science Institute where you have like cognitive scientists and neuroscientists meet with like the Dalai Lama and Swamis and this and that. And they're all kind of universally, agree, they all kind of universally agree on the idea that there's this pure consciousness. They can't, scientists, they don't like to, if they can't quantify something, they don't like to say it exists, but they know that there's something there, right? So- and that's what we truly are. So it's it's a realization of that. And the real the the jiva means the persona in Sanskrit, the persona and the ego. So um, that's that's a construct. Jason yeah. is a construct, right? Jason was born Australian. He was told he's Australian. He's told he's this and that. And so we have so many associative labels. And so. The realization is when you have this dissociation from the labels, yeah. Then you become this something that's much greater than mm. what you are. Unfortunately, in the West, people are trying to double down on associating with the labels. Oh yeah, and it's and it's the associating with the labels which causes conflict. Because yeah. if I'm if I'm Australian, if if I'm male, if I'm uh, I, I like this sporting team and this and that, I'm going to naturally conflict with both of you because from the labels we are, we are apparently different but we're not different 
Yes. When, when we look at it from the ultimate perspective, right? We might sound different. We might even, someone might speak differently, right? Or we might look differently, but these are associative labels. And so the West has gone in a really strange direction by doubling down on that, where this is why, this is why I think spirituality is about to go through a boom in the West because yeah. people are like, well, yeah. look, I'm sick of being what the narrative tells me that I am. Yes. I, like, because I don't feel like that, but they tell me that I am this. That's right. But I feel like something much greater than that. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that's why, and a lot of people actually, I read in the comments on YouTube, they, they speak about that because my, my main audience is American and they say, man, I'm just sick of the whole game over here. Yeah. I need, I need fresh eyes. I need fresh ears. I need, I need to come back to square one. Well, it's a dead end. It leads you to nothing. Yeah. The the yeah. materialism, the labels, the attachment, the success mm-hmm. of what it's 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 a dead end street, and people are getting to that road. It's my this is my the, what led me to my awakening. You get to that you get to that mountain peak, and it's nothing. It's it's empty. Yeah, you know, and you're like, what? Yeah. This isn't this, this isn't mountain. what I, this isn't what they were selling me my entire life. Yeah. Hey, on the exactly. on the on the topic of on the topic of enlightenment and realization, um, this is a topic. This is a this is a question that I've got about this that. I get confused about, and I'd love to hear uh, your um, uh, perspective on is where does reincarnation play in enlightenment? Like, and this could be a misunderstanding of mine, but I've always understood that once you reach enlightenment, that you've basically worked your karma off and you don't have to come back. Is that, Mm -hmm. is there a connection between that or not? Or am I, am I, am I I trying to make two things connected that shouldn't? No, what you said is correct. Like, but there's, I would say there's, there's, different philosophical and spiritual approaches yes. to it, right? Like, So the common understanding, as you said, in Buddhism and Hinduism would be that you work out all your karma, you resolve all your karma, and then that's it. Like there's no, you're, you're, you're off the wheel of samsara. You've become right. in Sanskrit what they call a jivan mukta. That means someone who is liberated while being alive. Yes. So mukta means liberation, right? And jiva means the persona has completely disappeared. And so the difference in perspective there would be that, uh, say, for example, from a perspective of non-dualism, right? So if we look at some of the great teachers of non-dualism, Ramana Maharshi, Shankara, um, even going back to Gaudapada, these, these type of teachers would say, how could, there, how could reincarnation exist when I'm already that? So I'm already self-liberated. I'm naturally the Atman, I'm naturally Brahman. That's my true nature. Liberation can only exist for a person, for a for a personality or or, or an ego, right? So, and look, you don't want to take that to an extreme, you, you, like because <laughs> some people do, right? Like so people here at Vita, and if they don't have a lot of context, they'll go, <clears throat> "All right, I'm just going to renounce the world, and that's it." And then you, <clears throat> they're out in the street begging, and you're like, "Well, how's Silence. it doing for? How's it doing for you?" You know. <laughs> But see, the thing is, in India, like you do have sadhus and you do have yogis who follow that path, but they're taken care of, right? Like, but if we follow yeah. it in the West, we're going to oh. be homeless and oh, and yeah. no one feeds us. No, one it's right. like <laughs> right. no, no one cares for you in the West, and in India, everyone cares for each other. So, it's um, it's different. So, but there is those two different perspectives. So you work out your karma as a as a as a jiva, and then <clears throat> you thin away your personality thins away, and then. When you die in this form, you become 
one with Brockman, right? One with the right. ultimate. Yeah. But as I said, there's the other perspective where it's like, you're already Brockman. There's no one to liberate and there's no one in bondage. Yeah. Your, your video uh, from Amana <laughs> Maharshi's The Final Truth, Esha sent me that. And that, dude, that, that, that video sent me deep for like <laughs> a couple weeks. I was just like, what? <laughs> what <laughs> like, i just kept but i kept coming to my wife and i was like but there's nothing to do <laughs> yeah but there's nothing yeah. to do you get it like and she yeah. was like yeah. i get it stop talking about it yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. and that video too was my first video of you like mm-hmm. hearing your stuff i just happened to find it i was in panama last year and i listened to that video and I just sobbed, like I cried same, all day same. because something in that teaching just hit me to the core mm-hmm. and, um, and I couldn't shake it. And, and that's when I was like, oh, I'm going to India. I was like, <laughs> I'm, I, I have to go again. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I, I think that, you know, the interesting thing about sort of that non-dual teaching, I think it comes to people when they're actually ready to. I think that a lot of people hear that and they say, ah, you know, it sounds all well and good, but it's like, for example, I always, I use like sometimes classical music for an example, right? Where a lot of people hate classical music, but if you can hear classical music, you can hear it, right? So if you hear the words of Ramana Maharshi or you hear this, these great Advaita teachings, if you're ready and and you can, you can hear it, then it, yeah. it, it touches you deeply, right? Because I, I, I came from, like what you said about reincarnation, right? That was my perspective. You know, it's still somewhat my perspective in some way in relation to the personality, but growing up, that was my perspective was I got to work out all this karma. I got all these tendencies and habits and things that just got to be flushed out. And then I read Be As You Are by Ramana Maharshi and I'm like, what? what's going on here? Like, Wait a minute. You know, like <laughs> just flipped everything upside down. And I'm like, well, hold on. Like what's going on? Like, but then it, it, but it made sense, right? It made sense that if we're all that already, if we're already like pure liberated from birth, but then we're taught a system of who we are and what we are, then that's what needs to be questioned. Not our actually innate nature. Like we are innately connected to the source always even in, in our worst moments like it's never not there yeah. and so yeah it's just i've actually coming up i've got another video about ramana one of those teachings as well in the next month about his view on suffering right like because someone came to him in one satsang i think it was in the 30s and they said you know why do why do we suffer you know why do i suffer and then ramana said so uh who suffers? What is suffering? Like, what is suffering? Like, because from his perspective, from a realized being, there's no suffering, like, because we're already all that, right? Like, suffering exists for for us petty humans, right? <laughs> petty egos, I should say. Like, it's we suffer from, from that perspective. But, and that's what that ego is what experiences the karma, uh, the habits, the vasanas, and has this what I call uh, what are called samskaras in Sanskrit, which are the, which is all of these impressions that we embody. It's a good game that we live in, right? So we we, we experience reality, and then we take in all of these impressions into our mind, and they go into our subconscious, and then they affect us in a way. But then we're already that, 
But then you've got this interference pattern of all of this mm-hmm. subconscious content. And so I always tell people before, sometimes before you get to that stage of understanding what Ramana said, understand your your samskaras or, or be or be cognizant of them, like be cognizant of your subconscious storehouse mm-hmm. because I, I've, I've heard it termed that a lot of people who aren't aware of that, they go around waxing lyrical about non-dualism and that they're already that, but then you stand on their foot and they punch you in the face. You know, like you have these, what I think Ken Wilber said once was spiritual dickheads, right? Like, so you get these people who develop on the path and then uh, haven't dealt with some of their own personal karma in some sense. Yeah. So, you know, and, and Jason, just, just to like, and I appreciate the perspective. And I, I really think that just from a, a, a ultimate beginner perspective, what you're saying, it's very hard to even to even put those pieces of the puzzle up and see like i'm just like you're barely putting the corners of the puzzle on the on the on the table you know like and they're like how the i i'm not even seeing what this is going to look like yet you know like uh, so yep. you know when you, what you're talking about is putting that final piece in there so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do but at, at its core at its at its easiest to understand perspective would you say that it's just understanding that everything is one that we are all one and that when you're able to do that that you realize there's really nothing to do there's nothing to gain there's nothing to lose there's nothing to win that there is nothing to be attached to and yep. that you know from a buddhist perspective that all suffering comes from attachment when when ramana maharshi says what is suffering he is saying i don't get it because i don't care what happens i have no I have no attachment. attachment to the outcome of anything. I could yep. die right now. You could die right now. And it makes no difference because we're already right. work with God. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, I just want to give some perspective to that. And, and, and then you say, okay, now, now input that into my, you know, um, mortgage, my job, my kids, <laughs> all of the, and it's, it's very hard to take that perspective and understand how that works. But, you know, and the, and the thing that, the thing that, um, Esha and I have really talked about over our journey together and our, our learning and kind of growth together is that it's always the teaching and mm. there's always an and to it. Mm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's always like being able to maintain that perspective and understand that you're still one and that you're not attached, but you still have to be the human. You still have to go to school. Right. You know, and then, yeah. and, it, yeah. and it's just, it's interesting as how those paths connect and mm. and how you navigate life in a non-dualistic perspective um and it's a, it's a dance you know and um it's yep. no one said it's easy um but it's <laughs> there there are some and to your point earlier um and I, it's not a cop out it's just the time like you said but like it's a lot easier to navigate life when you have um condemned any materialistic things and it's that just is supported in your culture and when you're not having to you know, so so don't beat yourself up folks if you're listening to this and you're like how you know i mean i just can't see myself right. you know you know letting stuff go but anyway that's no uh, no. no but that's beautifully said nate and and I, th- I think people need to realize like and i always use the teachings of the Bhagavad gita for people right like because the gita itself is a a manual for spiritual seekers who are in the world so it's not that you just disappear from the world or you build a, an opposition to your your life like you you maintain your duties right like that's why embedded in 
Hindu Dharma in India is this idea of Nishkarma Karma, which which means not not being attached to the fruits of your own action. So it okay. doesn't mean I'm just going to give up. It means that I'm going to continue to do what I need to do for my life, for my family's life, for the society, but I'm not going to be overly attached to it, right? Because that that's what actually causes suffering. So it's about, as what I mentioned about Alan Watts before, it's about being radically human. Like a lot of people think that Eastern spirituality, for example, is about floating off into the cosmos, but it's about knowing yourself even more. It's about being radically human. It's about the ability to live in the world, not condemn it, but to be at peace in your life as well, right? It doesn't mean you become a sheep or a follower or anything like that. You obviously still are aware of what's going on, but you you find contentment in the simplicity of your life. Mm. So with, with the job you have, the family you have, the friends you have, but your your consciousness is at a higher level, right? Like you just you're seeing the reality at from a higher level. Like for example, you might have went to the pub with your mates every Friday night and got smashed every Friday night. You, you might not do that anymore, right? Sure. Just simple thing, think, simple thing. It's not that you're not friends with your friends. It's just that you you know what sort of weighs you down spiritually. So you you change things about yourself on a subtle level. You don't have to go from Nashville to Mount Everest, right? You can do it in Nashville. Sure. And you can you can resolve it there. So mm-hmm. I think that particularly with Advaita, with non-dualism, with that, with that type of understanding, <clears throat> people get it wrong. They think that they're just going to become Ramana Maharshi, they're going to become a sadhu. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't work for them because in the end, they they it's, it's not feasible, right? You need to – and actually, Ramana himself – when people would come to him and speak, if you read some of the, the the transcripts, he's saying, "Why do you want to leave your job? Why do you want to leave your family? Like, what's what's the matter? Why right. can't you exist in that reality with a with a realized mindset? Like, sure. what? I mean, there are there are times in our lives where probably we need to distance ourselves, right? But for a prolonged period of time, I don't know if that's practical for anyone and and even I, I think that might inhibit someone's spiritual growth right so yeah. you know to put the corners on the puzzle is is that you have to accept your own humanity and you know we come from a culture where we don't accept our own humanity but realize that eastern spirituality is saying look it's okay to, to be human but be radically human be who who you truly are at your core and exist in the world and 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 just like Arjuna on the battlefield in in the Bhagavad Gita, like play your role, but play your role well, but realize, (laughs) but realize that all roles are played. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's the thing that I think people don't realize. They think, oh, I'm going to play this role as a mother, for example, or I'm going to play this role as a, a, in the stock exchange or something. And then that role consumes their life. Whereas they don't, they don't have a distance from the role. Well, they don't realize that that role is temporary, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think that's a that's a huge part for so many people is the attachments to the role. I mean, even for me, I kind of experienced that after my husband suddenly died. Right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, not thinking about, um, yeah, we're not going to be here together forever. Mm-hmm. But and it took me really on an existential crisis afterwards because it opened up this this box it's like holy shit oh this can happen any moment 
it's like yeah. this could all end now like it just it floored me and it and it took me into this deep rabbit hole of of deep intense fear and the fear really was shit i have no control over this no that was the fear and that's mm -hmm. why i was waking up with panic and anxiety attacks and and i didn't know the why the root behind that the anxiety and panic attacks and the fear but now with great clarity is because i realized that part of me the jiva and the ego realize oh i'm not in control of any of this no and it completely freaked me out but it's a death's a great yeah you know, yeah grief is a is a is a a sad thing obviously you got to go through it but it, it's right. an, it's a it's a powerful lesson in yeah. what you're saying and a powerful lesson in letting go not that not that you forget but no right you know like it's it's you know i've had i had that with my parents when i was younger right you have to go through this sort of dark night of the soul where you you're in a in a place where it's like well they're never going to be here again and it's like well you know when i was young it was like well that's pretty overwhelming but you know you it, you've got to get on with it in some sense i mean not that you forget but you realize like you said like you life is uncertain and i think that the problem in the west is we're trying to create a, an environment where there's certainty and so yes. when uncertainty when, when uncertainty arises we don't know how to deal with it yes and, and so and so that's what i love in places like india they live in uncertainty 24 hours yeah. a day yeah and so yeah. like yeah for me like i just going down to rent a, a, a bicycle is is like an eight hour ordeal in india <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's um, you know, like the uncertainty is is uh, paramount there. But it's, I love what you said, Esher. It's it's about letting go of. I mean, not that you don't love your husband, not that you've sure. forgot. It's it's about the lesson of learning about uncertainty, learning about actually. There's there's a there's a power in that. Hey, look, I'm not in control of my life, and yeah. that's actually that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. I can only control certain things. Yep. I can control yeah. I can control my bowel movements, I can control what I eat. You Sometimes know. not even that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, not in India. Not in India, you can't control. Not your in bowel India. Movements. No, yes, no, no, no. For sure. No. But like you we control such a small bandwidth of our life and we yeah. think that we're running the show. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're not, no, you're not. And sometimes yeah. the lessons are so powerful and sometimes so tragic. For us to realize that, right? Like yep. you losing your husband, for example. Like it's so tragic. Um, and you don't want to overanalyze why that happened or or, yeah. or anything. You know, it's just that's life. That's mm -hmm. life. I remember Gurdjieff said Go ahead. Suggest, I remember, I, I remember Gurdjieff once said, like when he started teaching Westerners, and he said, uh, well, he was a Westerner himself, but he said, you know, one of the greatest powerful meditations that you can ever experience is realizing that everyone that exists right now will soon be dead yeah so yeah. <laughs> and say so like a lot of people are like ah oh, well soon be dead what are you talking about and it's, <laughs> and it's like but seriously like if yeah. even if you live a hundred years hundred years in in the scope of the whole entire cosmos is nothing it's not even a blink of an eye right and so we live in this hundred years and we think we understand everything hey man we've we've worked it all out and it's like you've only been here a hundred years yeah. Like, seriously, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. The yeah I think, go ahead, Dave, uh, Nate. No, I was just saying that it just keeps coming back to me that just the allowing 
and being mm-hmm. okay with the allowing. And that, yeah. that is in tune saying that you're unattached is then that's with everything, your people yeah. in your life, yourself, your job, your, you know, this just, and that's, it's so hard, but it's also so beautiful on the other end of it. If you can, if you can conceptualize what it would be to live your life completely unattached to other people's opinions, your opinions of yourself, and like all of these things that we stack in ourselves, it's like, that's complete bliss is the complete unattached life. Right. Yeah. 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 That's that. That's the teaching of Uwe in, in Taoism, right? The allowing of things just to, to run its course, to understand that we don't have, we don't have control here. So what's going to happen in your life is even beyond your control. Yeah. Right. You think, you think you're trying to control it. Stop trying to control it. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. and it's, it's not like, in the sense that you have to overcome the attachment as if it's like a competitive game, right? Like there's, right, there's right, stories right. in there's stories in Zen Buddhism, for example, where a, uh, a teacher got killed, and the one of the students who was high up on the uh, in 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 that school of Buddhism was crying. He, he was stricken with grief, right, for days, and everyone's going, "Look, look, he thinks he's so cool, you know. He's look how attached he is." And then, the, but then the next day, he's just out gardening and he's just doing his thing. And it's like he's he just he said that he expressed spontaneously in that moment what was needed. It's not like he he was uh, caught by attachment. It was just that, you know, in that moment, my master died, and I expressed what it was in that moment. Yeah. But I moved on, like it, with the transformations of life. I wasn't caught in the transformations of life. Yeah. I just moved. I moved naturally on. That was it. You know, and as I think about it, you know, there's also some risk of being attached to non-attachment. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. You know like, you be, so you got to be careful with it. But anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, you don't you don't want to be a cop out. You know, I mean, like if you lose someone close and you're sitting there, like, you know, yeah, sucking yeah, it yeah. up and going, "Look, I'm not affected by this," and it's like, just let it out, brother. It's all yeah. good. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. Like it do- it doesn't make you any lesser than anyone else. We've all been there. Yeah. So that's why that's why I love that Zen story because Buddhism is is hectic about attachment, but at the same time, it's about expressing spontaneously in that moment what is needed as well. So without thinking. So like in Zen and in, and in Taoism, there's an emphasis on being immediate and appropriate in each and every situation, which is a hard place for any of us to get to. But with grief and with happiness, we don't have any problem with that because we can right. express. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so we can express it. You know, but it's in the other parts of life, in the gray areas where we where we struggle with yes. that. So. Yes. Well, I think for so many people, like being gutted, it, like no one wants to actually say, you know, I'm going to gut myself, right? In mm-hmm. terms of, you know, surrendering some of these things, and and yet it's 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 a practice, right? Like yep. of us, it doesn't have to be. None of us are going to fall into you know, this deep surrender all at once. It, it takes practice, Exactly. you know, um, it's like, you know, put in a, a bag of tea and hot water and steep in it. it it's going to take time. Exactly. And it, it, sometimes it comes with age sometimes too. I remember being younger where it's like, I got need to surrender. You know, you, it becomes a mantra in your head sometimes. And it's like, well, you're overthinking about the surrender. Yeah. That's yeah. why it's not, that's why it's not naturally coming. Like it's yeah. surrender is a natural thing, right? You, you yeah. naturally surrender. To whatever it is, or you can stand there and fight, you know. So, yeah. um, 
a, a lot of people overanalyze a lot of the spiritual knowledge too. Like it, it becomes almost like a like a crutch in their in their spiritual development, where they think like I should not be attached here. I shouldn't. I, I should surrender. And it's like, well, that that's only great if it comes naturally. Yeah. If it doesn't come natural, if it's if it's premeditated, it's contrived, right? Like it's a contrived, right. it's a contrived surrender. It's a contrived yeah. uh, non-attachment. Yeah. And so yeah, you don't want to be. Contr- that's so good. That's spot on. Well, I like to yep. say that's the ego coming in through the back door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. You know. Yeah. 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 That's the spiritual ego, isn't it? Hey, look at me. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. strong, aren't I? Not yeah. attached. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, we'll see. But you know, one of the things, like when I was on our trip, you recommended a, a couple books for me to read. And I have to say, like, I've been reading um, The Song of Ribu since I came back, right? Mm. Um, and there's something that just reading it, just, and, and I'm saying this based on what you just said, like, I read those stanzas, I read a couple stanzas a day. And, and sometimes I read it out loud. Sometimes I read it silently, but I find that just reading it, but not having an attachment, it's doing something to me mm. Seriously, like, uh, on a deeper level. And I was telling Nate before we began, he was asking me, Oh, how are you doing? I was like, man, I just woke up the other day and I, I go through some stuff at night and I, I, I wake up and I'm like, I'm sobbing in the morning because I realized, oh, there is no other. Mm. It's it's like we're just different manifestations, and and I, and I cried like for you know two two mornings ago. I just sobbed at this deeper realization, and then this morning I woke up and I'm like, oh, there's nothing to be desired, and I'm and I'm looking at I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. You know. But I have to say, I think just just reading, but not. I don't know. There's there's, I'm not doing anything outside of necessarily reading those texts. But the texts have power on its own of just reading it, but not having an attachment to, you know, being that way necessarily. Like it just exactly. comes as a as a as a surprise or a gift that you weren't yes. expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not you're not analyzing it, are you? No, like it's it's right. And and to give the listeners some context too, I remember that day we were in Ramana Maharshi's uh, the Ramana Ashram library, and I said, "Have you have you read this?" And then I remember your eyes lit up. <laughs> you looked at the car, <laughs> and then you opened it up. I mean, that was that was one of my most memorable things of that tour. But yeah, the Ribu, the Ribu Gita, the Ashtavaka Gita, these type of Gitas, which are called actually for the listeners nididyasana. So nididyasana is a word uh, for a group of texts that is for people who are advanced, let's say, or or people who are ready for that type of knowledge. There's the other ones in comparison to that is the prashjana trahi. The prashjana trahi is the Bhagavad Gita, Brahma Sutras, Upanishads. They're deep. They're deep on their own, but that's kind of like that's elementary school, right? And then, mm. and then, and the nididyasana is for you know, for uni students, I say, or something like this. So, um, but like you said, like in reading the stanzas, you don't have to even overanalyze them because mm-hmm. it's it's speaking to something much deeper. I think it, once the ego kicks in, and when you read those sort of books, then you start to think like, you know, am I attached? I mean, you make a whole game of spirituality, yeah. and that's one of the 
that's what I get a lot in the comment section on YouTube. Like, and I and sometimes I, I say to people like, I, I'm I'm not really coming from that competitive spirit. Like, you're coming from that place, but that's not where I'm at anymore. Like, I'm not right. there. I'm not fighting myself. I'm not uh, judging myself in that way. And look, we all do slip up sometimes, and we have our moments, right? But that's when forgiveness kicks in, and it naturally kicks in, and you just move on with your life, and that's it, right? Like it's it's not a game to be won, and I think that that's what a lot of people think. It's a game to be won. I'm going to be the most enlightened guy right. in the world now. It's like, yeah, good on you. Like, yeah, you'll he's never your get there Mouse. because that's the ego. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people are doing that, right? And it's and it's meaningless. It's it's. First and foremost, are you, are you a, a human? Are you a human? Like before we talk about any of this other knowledge, and I think that that's a lot of that's a a precursor for people to get into spirituality is that you know are you well mannered? You know, do you have humility naturally? I mean, too, are you compassionate? Are you forgiving? Do you have these natural qualities uh, before we even talk about the higher knowledge? Because yeah. if if you want to talk about the higher knowledge, if you don't have these, I mean, it's not going to take root. Yeah. You're not going you're not going to be realized because you're going to still be an asshole and yeah. think that and think that you're enlightened but you're not. Right. So, yeah. and I think people have to be honest with themselves. I I've had to be honest with myself many times, you know. Yeah. So and so I think that people have to be like that. It's the, the the that's one of the big problems when eastern spirituality went west is this competitive spirit, this competitive nature about it. You know, who's more enlightened, who which teacher is the greatest and and it yeah. just gets a bit nutty when you get down to that level. Yeah, because none of it needs defending in the first place. No. no. Right? There's this sense that I've got to defend God, and God doesn't need defending. Like, <laughs> I, I don't understand that. Like, what are you yeah. defending? It's like, right. Because if you really believe it, right, or if you really, I should say, if you really know it, it doesn't even matter that there's atheists. No. Because they're, no. they're a part of the one reality as well. Everything. They just can. They're everything. They just got a wacky way of understanding it. They have their own mythology. Their mythology is they they don't believe in God. They think there's nothing. That's a mythology in and of itself. So, <laughs> but if you really understand and you really know it, it doesn't even really matter. Okay, yeah. like they're just a, they're a bit off the path. They're a bit lost. But there's always been people like that. Well, would you we would you say, Jason, that those people are also serving a purpose for the the the, the collective consciousness that they're maybe their atheism is also turning other people maybe towards, and it's just, everybody's doing their own. It's, it's all one. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I look, yeah, I look yeah. at, I look at the, I look at someone's stance like that to say, you know, this, this turnaround, this life, I'm not, I'm not into this, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's not going to, it's the same as the dark. It's the same as all the horrible shit that happens. It's, it's a necessary thing to allow this collective, the, the collective game to happen because without it, you would you would never have any 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 understanding or, or perspective. Exactly, exactly. You you need that variation. You, you really do. And I think that in the West we're actually new to atheism too. If you look at in India, because there's so many different philosophical and spiritual schools in India, for thousands of years there's been an atheist school there. So the belief mm. in no God. And so, but the thing with India, because they're so like spiritually so far ahead of most places in the world, is that they've they've all coexisted in that in for. 5,000, however long, all these different schools, right? And it's not that they go around fighting each other. It's just that, hey, look, this is what I vibe with. I don't believe in God. 
okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's like not that I need to convert them. It, as you said, it serves a greater purpose. Whatever that is, it's beyond our pay grade. Yeah. Right. You know, so it <laughs> so we don't really know what that is, right? And and I think that that surrender and understanding, even with all of the wackiest things in the world, right? You think that wow, it's it serves a purpose. I remember a teacher once explained the like the the I Ching, right, to me. So the the Taoist book of uh, wisdom and divination, and he, and he was saying that from this perspective, and this may sound harsh, right? Uh, someone like Adolf Hitler had to happen. Yes. And it's like, and it's like, wow, like that's, that's a bold statement. But when you think about the, the totality of it, right. The totality of the the universe that we live in, like it happened anyway. It's not like we, it's not like we stopped it. So it's not like it didn't happen. Right. Like, and so it's not like we can't cherry pick the good and the bad. All of this is part of the, it's part of the one Brahman. It's, and like I said, it's above our pay grade. We don't know why Adolf Hitler happened, right? We don't know why the atrocities happened. Maybe it'll make sense to us when we die. Who knows? Yeah, yeah I've always looked at it like this. When my when my meek little brain tries to conceive and understand what that's that perspective, it's like I think of it like we imagine that we are like ants in an anthill, and like a little boy's tricycle tire runs over the anthill and it all hell is breaking loose down here in this anthill but really there's a lot of joy and love that's happening above and then you can just go even and then there's then there's the mother that's watching the little boy and then there's like all of these things that are happening and we are the ant in the small and we do not we do not possess the perspective to be able to understand Mm. why all the bad shit happens in this world but we know but we know that like there's a much bigger thing going on other than what's yeah. happening in the sandhill, you know? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love that. I love that, Nate. I love that. Cause it's really good. You, you think, you think about it, right? If you, if you only, and I speak about this on the channel sometimes, if you only go back like 500 years ago or even, even 200 years ago, we might've been in North America, right? And there's nothing happening. And then, but there's something happening in South America, but you don't know. It's another t- part of the world, but right. you're joyful and blissful where you are, but there's an atrocity happening somewhere else. Right, but the, mm-hmm. we live in a world today with mass media that we think oh. everyone's pro- we think everyone's problem is our problem. Yeah, hey, that's our problem, and it's like, is it really your problem though? Because five hundred years ago, these things were still happening, and it wasn't everyone's problem. Mm-hmm. And suicide rates were low, mental health issues were low, mm-hmm. but now you're taking on everyone's problems, and you think that they're your own, and they're not. Yeah. And I, and I get a lot of pushback on the channel when I mention things like that. Like they say, oh, you, know, you should defend like this cause and that cause. And it's like, I mean, there's so many causes out there. Which one do I start with? Come you on, know, man. like what's what's the most moral and yeah. pious high ground that I can take? Yeah. And I always say to people like, you know, you, you want me to worry about, for example, America's problems, but you don't worry about Bangladesh's problems, Burkina Faso's problems. Huh. And then people say, well, I don't even know where they are. And it's like, well, there you go. So, right. Right. so, so just fuck them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I don't even know about it. But it's that you know, and and that exact mindset there is 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 kind of like the you know Plato's allegory of the cave. You do have no idea what else is going on outside of your little cave. How can you speak about anything? Exactly. You know, and that and we are in our own little cave here in the West. Exactly, and we think it's everyone's problems, and it's not. Yeah. Like it's. I remember last year, like. 
I mean, I knew this though, like, but leaving Australia after a few years and going back to India and everything is just like all of the worries in Australia just don't even exist. Yeah. But they're not even, they're not even a, a topic of conversation. So, and it's like, we, we get so engrossed in our own perceived uh, worldly problems that we don't realize that they're just immediate problems. They're not something that everyone's dealing with. And, and I think we do that on an individual level and a collective level. Yeah. So we need pers- we need perspective, and perspective. that's that. That's the 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 non-interference part of Uwei in Taoism, right? Where Lao Tzu challenged always the leaders of the time in the Warring States period, where he said, "I know that you've got a pretty cool philosophy and this and that, and you think it's the best, and you're going to try and push that on everyone." But that always leads to conflict. It always leads to some sort of disagreement, or it doesn't come cheaply when you try and push your own agenda. He said, yeah. "Why don't you? Why don't you just try and just allow the world to be and to run its own course, and leave everyone do their own thing?" And this that that philosophy has never been taken on board all throughout the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've always sort of mentioned that, like, you know, imagine the world we could live in. It it wouldn't be like we would nations and that would disappear. We would still have, you know, nations, and we still have all of these different things, but we would coexist in a completely different fashion yeah you know it, it wouldn't be like oh i'm australian i'm going to tell americans what to do or america's going to tell china what to do or this and that it's that we come we come to the table with all an empty plate instead of saying look you know my plate's better and so forth and so on so you know it's so interesting listening to this it brings up another disagreement contention that people have uh, the meat eaters versus vegans. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! This not right, right, like the, the vegans are saying, "Oh my oh. god, you shouldn't eat meat." And you know, the meat eaters are like, "Well, you're eating something that's alive too, right? Like, like <laughs> trees are, are living organisms as well." So, yeah. Pot calling the kettle black, right? Like yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's I find that argument so ridiculous. Like when when I speak on my videos and I like. I, I get it, right? Like when I say that, like for example, if I say like some cultures naturally uh, were meat oriented because that's what was in the environment. Like it's not it's not a matter of morality here. Right. It's a matter of like uh, nourishing your existence. And then, oh my god, the vegans they just they're on me. Like, and I'm just like, oh. I'm sure you both have seen Seven Years in Tibet. Like every time I hear that argument, I, I think of I think of like. <laughs> them building the the uh the movie theater and they're out there picking up all of those little worms and like it's, it's impossible <laughs> it's impossible to do anything to plow a field and not kill a thousand you know exactly those caterpillars exactly. it's impossible so exactly. Uh, exactly so listen jason man um you have given us more time than we should be taking away from you and i am so grateful uh we could sit here and chat for another two hours and i don't know that i would get all the questions that i want to ask to you out but um I want to get into like kind of steering towards wrapping things up here in a second. So Esha, do you have anything to close with Jason or any, anything to. Um, let's see what I have. Um, how would one, um, someone listening to this and they wanted to get a little deeper and, you know, I had a question like, how would, how does one cultivate freedom? Um, like where should they start with that for themselves Inner freedom? Inner freedom. That's a that's a it's a loaded question. That one. Let's, let's Where would this? Where's the starting point for that? The, again, the starting point is to 
be more introspective, right? You have to has, have to start looking within. Like if if you're starting from if ground one, at you know zero point, then you have to start looking within. You have to reorient your awareness that the world is in here, right? So you have to have a different perspective. Not the world is out here. The world is actually in here. Now you don't want to make that some sort of duality, but it's about your perception. Right. And so freedom itself is being free from your own perceptions of the world. Mm. And so <laughs> now, <laughs> so then, so how do we do that? Then we will we, we have to look inside. We have to maybe look to the, the, the people who have done it before us, right? That's why we yeah. look to the great texts. That's why yeah. we look to the meditation practitioners. Like, oh, okay, I need to learn how to meditate. I need to learn what the Buddha understood, right? I need to learn these yeah. things. I need to look inside and, because my perception of the world is skewed. It's not a correct perception perception on the world. And to say that, there's not really a correct perception of the world. There's only the world is one pure consciousness, and you only understand that when you have no perceptions of it. So, so then it really comes down to like understanding yourself, knowing yourself. Um, I wouldn't say overly questioning yourself, but being conscious and aware of your own subjective view of the world. Yeah. So, and as Westerners, that's easier said than done because we have so many opinions and, and we're conditioned more than other places in the world. So we see the world, hey, that's an American sees it this way. And it's like, there is no American to right. get rid of that. You know, the, a Christian sees yeah. it that way. There is no Christian, get rid of that as well. So it's about <laughs> observing yourself more, being more aware. And then once once those layers begin to peel away, you'll 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 understand what freedom is. It's not it's not a a freedom in the outside world. I mean that 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 can help, right? That can that can cultivate maybe a deeper uh, introspection. So if you go to a cave, for example, like the sadhus or the yogis would in the ancient times, that can evoke something. But you have to in, in the end, you have to live where you are. So you have to really observe yourself yeah. and be serious about it. You know, I find. What I've found in the, the 15 years that I've been teaching this is that I'll come across people who have a passing interest in understanding themselves and spirituality. And then I'll see them two or three years later and they're completely different. Like it was a phase. Yeah. So spirituality can't be a phase. It has to be something that you're dedicated to for life. It's it's it because that's what that's what life is, right? Life is spirituality. And so you need to be dedicated to that. Not, you don't have to. It, it can't be a contrived dedication, too. It has to be something that's innate. That's what I was going to say. I, I've, I've found that for a lot of people, including myself, it's like it's like it's that bell that can't be unrung. Like you can't. There's no turning back once yeah. you've like if, if 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 you're on the path and you really are starting to go down the path. It's not a hobby. It's like I can I cannot physically go back to seeing the world and life the way that I used to. I, so mm -hmm. I have to I have to move forward. I have to understand what this new reality is. Exactly. I'm the same. And I, I'm, all three of us are the same, right? Like I, there's no way I could go back. Like once I understood what this is, then it's like, well, how can I go back to just <laughs> you know, I don't know what, like whatever I was doing when I was younger, you know, hanging would, out with my mates. That's torture to me. That's torture. Yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. You can't do it to yourself. It, yeah, it's self torture. It really is. It really yeah. is. So, uh, I think that the, I think some people like you, Nate, have this deep longing for it, right? Like it's it's something you can't explain. It's just if you're not 
if you're not following that path, I mean, life doesn't mean much. Right. So, but, th- but there's other people that in the world who their thing is materialism, right? So yeah. It's like they, they yeah. have a phase, yeah. they have a phase with spirituality and the next minute they're back doing what they do. Sure. And look, that's, that's each to their own, right? So right. it's not, not for any of us to dissect, but I think it's kind of, in some sense, uh, Gurdjieff said once that when you look at any sort of organism, there's, uh, the particular the, the the mass part of the organism is taking care of itself and everything just so it just keeps going along but then there's always these other elements of the organism that are striving for more they break free of it and they're all they're almost not part of that that organism they're almost completely different in some sense from every everyone and everything else yeah and and i think that's that's kind of what people are on the spiritual path is it's not that you, Look, it's not that you are different from every each and everyone else, but inside you're different, right? There's something sure. that's that's changed inside that you cannot resonate with people who who think that the world is on the outside. Yeah. So so that's that's the challenge for everyone on the spiritual path is is can you keep to that? Can you keep to the understanding that the world arises from within you? It's hmm. not and I'm not saying that on a quantum physics level or anything like that. I'm saying that purely from a subjective perspective, like your perceptions of the world, your opinions, your beliefs, your conditioning, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, and yeah. look, what one of the uh, earlier books that I read that had a big impact. And look, it, it's it's a tough book to read, uh, and it's not got anything to do with the spiritual traditions. And it comes from an individual who probably didn't like the spiritual traditions, and that was uh, "Total Freedom" by Jiddu Krishnamurti. And mm. look, that that book is deep and hard to read, but it's it's not in a sense related to sort of any sort of spiritual perspective, but he <laughs> super analyzes like our subjective view of the world and like how we see the world. And so he talks a lot about how we have like a limited perspective of the world. Like we think that we understand things, but our view is actually limited. And so he would talk about how the individual itself is actually limited. So, and I would say for anyone starting on the path, that's a, that's a brilliant book. I'm gonna. I, I've got probably like four pages of notes here. By the way, so uh, <laughs> yeah. it's gonna. I'm gonna I mean, it's gonna take me forever uh, to to go through and all of the stuff that I've written down that you've recommended and said. But um, I've got a couple a couple quick ones, and I you know um, I'll ask the first two um, very quick. Um, um, what what does your day look like from like a, a meditative or a practice? Like what do you what do you do on a day to day basis to kind of keep yourself balanced and um, are you a meditator? Do you, do you, do you practice? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Morning and night. Okay. Um, usually 30 to 45 minutes. And then on top of that, if I have time, I'll practice, uh, Tai Chi Chuan, which is a Chinese martial art. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more of a meditative martial art. Like it's not really, you know, martial art, like mixed martial arts or anything like that. It's, it's more for me, the Tai Chi Chuan is more of a, more of a hobby as opposed to meditation. Sure. It's more something I'm, I've been doing for years, trying to get better at, not very good at, but I enjoy it. Um, also, reading, you know, a big part of my day. So, and and first thing in the morning, actually, what I do before any meditation practice and this and that, it's just a practice for myself. Is more of a, like I have a sculpture of Shiva here. I have Ramana Maharshi. I have the Buddha. Right? I have like in my sort of shrine area, that's where I go and I, I pay 
pranams or respect mm-hmm. to to the all and those before me. So yeah, that's not not so not so much building a duality, but just more of a practice of reverence. You know, yeah. like keeping keeping that innocent reverence alive instead of thinking I know everything. Right. right. So. A lot of people on the spiritual path think they know everything and they say, Oh, you still worship Vishnu or something like this. Like you're not realized. You're you still have a dualistic perspective of the world. And it's like, well, you don't really understand. Like it's I'm just appreciating and giving gratitude to the all and everything, which includes yeah. everything. Like it's not it it doesn't exclude anything. So that's the first thing I would do on the day, and then the meditation practice would begin. And look, I do between 30 to 45 minutes. And I don't try to go too crazy because you might hear a lot of people online say they meditate four or five hours a day and then they've wrote, they wrote a book in a day and you're thinking like, <laughs> this person must have a 50-hour day or something like that. What's <laughs> uh, Is there a specific meditative practice that you've kind of navigated toward and you find to be the most effective for you? Um, anything? Yeah, definitely. There's three, there's three meditation practices that I, I resonate the most with, like Vipassana. So in Theravada Buddhism, there's Vipassana. Which is very simple, right? In Vipassana meditation, you become conscious of the breath to the point where you're conscious of your senses in your body. Now, the, the now the concept of this is that if you become so, you know, you know when your legs ache in meditation and you feel like strain sometimes in your groin and that. Right. They say place your awareness on it because often our what in Sanskrit is called vasanas, our habits and our tendencies. That that that's what affects our sort of our psych, general psychology, right? And the only way to deal with those from a Vipassana perspective is to place your awareness on where the pain is. And so you get in, they, they, the belief in Theravada Buddhism is that in the, like the nerve fibers of our, of our body, that's where the subconscious is oh. dwells. So if you're placing your awareness there more often than not, then you're starting to deal with something like what, Esha was saying before with, with reading the Rebu Gita, you're placing your awareness there, but you're not intentionally trying to do anything or change anything. But because your awareness is there, it's having a transformative, transformative uh, effect on your being. And so that's one of the reasons why I, 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 I've practiced that a lot. The other one is Zen open awareness meditation. So this is basically just Zazen. So you don't have to sit and look at the wall like as the zen practitioners do right you can just sit but the the thing about open awareness meditation is that you are allowing your thoughts to to arise right you're not trying to judge them you're not trying to silence them you're just allowing everything sort of to burp up in your being and you're just you're just you're being coming conscious of them that's easier said than done, but the training right. in that is is to make sure that your mind is constantly not running here and there with the thoughts, right? So it's about building that sort of that distance of look, these are the thoughts, but I'm I have in Sanskrit what Viveka is like this discernment that I can see this stuff happening instead of like, hey, like there's a fantasy in my mind, I'm gonna go run with that and see where that takes me. Right. And so it has a it has a big effect on the wandering mind. And the last meditation practice is uh well what i call in in vajrayana buddhism it's from it's from the teachings i don't know if you know zogchen mm-hmm. zogchen is a a non-dual teaching that it comes from tibet so it's it's part of vajrayana buddhism but it's a kind of a fusion between uh shaivism so 
so sh- Shiva worship in in India and uh, Buddhism in in the Himalayas. So, and this Zogchen meditation is what I call open open uh, field awareness sort of meditation. I mean, I don't really know how to say that in, properly in English, but it's about actually the better way to say it is peripheral field meditation. So think about it this way: you know, you got periphery vision, right? And you can see things out here. The the training in Zogchen is to apply that on the inside, and so when you apply that on the inside, what you notice is that it sounds counterintuitive. Like you're looking into your own mind, but you're looking at the outer reaches of your mind. Okay. And so in doing that, you're kind of encasing all of your thoughts in that. You're you're you're, you're looking at everything. It's like a panorama. Yeah. And so, it, in some sense, that's similar to Zen open awareness meditation, but the peripheral field meditation is. I find it very powerful because you can actually give yourself kind of an anchor and an indicator right. of like, like I'm looking out here and in doing so I can see things easier in my mind. Yeah. And, and so you hear of a lot of Zogchen masters are really like realized. Like you, you talk about self-realized people. There's a lot of self-realized Zogchen masters in Tibet actually. So the difficult thing is getting to Tibet now, you know, it's, it's a tough place to get to, but right. But that meditation practice, I really love. Um, okay, I love that man. That, those are that. Th- those are three. Those are three. I'm gonna look into all those. Uh, on the same token, you talked about your morning routine with reading. Is there is there just one or two books that like I'm just starting down my spiritual journey? I want to just start to like you said put the put the corner pieces of the puzzle in that gets me just I'm dipping my toe in the water. What what are what are the first couple books that you would recommend for somebody that's just starting down this path? Definitely the the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Like I think that that's uh, you could say it's a beginner and advanced person's manual. It depends mm-hmm. on that your perception of it changes as you get as you go on the path, right? But I think that if you get a good version of the Tao Te Ching, it gives you what I said before. It gives you that sort of inner orientation. So then you start to work on humility, compassion, forgiveness. You start to feel these on a very natural level yeah um other books in relation to that that is so many there really is so many right no Um, no it's i would say the i would say the bhagavad gita i would say is is a good segue into understanding that point you mentioned before about living in the world but not being of it i think that the gita gives you a, a, a deeper perspective of sort of your own life and your your sort of your your nature in this world like what's your what's your purpose in some sense like without having to cultivate a purpose like what's your natural purpose yeah. so to speak so because I, w- I wouldn't want to mention any of like the ashtavaka gita and this and that because that's going a bit too you're going sure. a bit too far no that but- that i think that's for, for for most of our listeners either one of those is going to be i mean it's a lot to it's a lot to digest and and for both of them for sure um um any other any other um teachings of any, any of the um or do you do you subscribe to any of the specific ram Dass or alan watts books or anything like that anything actually that- it's it's i love how you mentioned that obviously uh be here now right. ram Dass, love it by alan watts one book actually it's I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it it is a great book for beginners but i i look i can pick that up now and i love i love reading it. it's like right, reading poetry right. but it's uh, actually two books it's uh the book so the subtitle to that is the taboo against knowing who you are. That book is is unbelievable. Like that's like a 
I would say, and I'm re- that's why I'm really glad you mentioned it. It's like a, it's a pre-manual to before understanding Advaita Vedanta, like non-dualism. So Alan talks about the game of black and white and all of these things that we we cook up in our mind, right? So he's dealing in the world of perception. Also, the other book I would recommend is Dow the Watercourse Way by Alan. So that book mainly is just mainly about just the way the Dow flows. It's just about how life is. Like it's about allowing life to be as it will. And, you know, Alan's brilliant. Like he can speak to both a scholar and a beginner. So he has that ability. Yeah. And no, I, it's, it's I, I've never seen anyone like him and, and, and Ram Dass. And I mean, and I mean, I, I think that you have a lot of those same qualities as well. So um, this is now officially way over the amount of time that I thought that I, that we wanted to take. And I, I, I literally could keep going and I know I should. Too. So listen, I'm, I'm going to just end this here uh, and say, maybe at some point in time in the, in the future, we can have you back on and, uh, uh, and maybe talk talk about some other things. So, um, Esha, do you have anything to end? I, you know what? I I am so complete. I, 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 this is just so in my wheelhouse and I'm so grateful, Jason, that you're able to share, um, your wisdom with us and, and, uh, and your time and your time with us too. I'm, I'm just, yeah, not enough words. Look, the honor is truly mine. Seriously, like I mean, I could go on for hours if you wanted. Oh, so, so, <laughs> uh, so could we, <laughs> and so could we. Um, I, you know, if you're still listening to this podcast, you are uh, just a ride or die listener with us. So just, <laughs> if you have, if you have to, if you have to pause a couple times and get through it, it it's definitely worth it. That's but, right. Um, hey, listen. So, so where can people find you, uh, Jason, if they want to learn more about you and all of your teachings? Well, they can find me at my website, jasongregory.org. And uh, easiest way to, to find me is YouTube, is right. um, at Jason Gregory Author. And so they can find me there. And, and everyone can find my books on Amazon or, or wherever. So if you just type Jason Gregory into, into Google, it'll come up. Yeah, um, exactly. A bunch. So um, you'll find <laughs> and, then, and then lastly, um, just as a, as a parting piece, uh, somebody has one video of yours to watch to get started is there one that you recommend above all others for beginners well i my i would say two uh, okay. two videos like my two most popular videos is the one that you both watched oh, Ramana yeah. Maharshi, the final truth so yeah. i'd say give that a watch because even i mean even if you're a beginner i think that it can allow you to think differently it unlocks uh, some stuff. It, yeah, and I would say probably my documentary, The Art of Effortless Living. I think a lot of people sort of, they resonate with that, and I think that that could be a, like an introduction to probably the deeper stuff. I also talk, not that not that that's not deep, but yeah. the other stuff that I speak about, I think that that gives someone sort of a spiritual grounding and yeah. understanding a lot of the things that we've spoke about here today. Yeah, awesome. And and I want to before we go to just to, to plug in that if anyone is interested in going to the East and going to explore more of this, Jason does tours and he's doing one in February to North India to where Buddha's from. Yep. That's Is right. that correct? Yeah. So, and that's in February. So, you know, go to his site and find out more about that as well. Thank All you, right. Thank you. Jason, man, thank you so much. This has been uh, a pleasure. It's been one of my favorite ones. I feel like we covered a whole lot of stuff and uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for you uh, to giving up, you know, two and a half hours of your dates for, uh, for us. So we appreciate it, man. Brother, I'm, I'm honored. Seriously. I, 
love and appreciate both of you and and yeah let's do it again one day all right man thank you guys this is the end of episode 21 we'll catch you on the next one see ya you've been listening to the holy shit podcast we hope you've enjoyed the show and we hope you've gotten something from it we'll be back soon but in the meantime find us on all social media at holy shit with nate and esha for questions and comments you can send an email to holy shit with nate and esha at gmail.com we can't thank you enough for listening to the show and we'll see you next time on the holy shit podcast 